Hello and welcome to Overburden, the podcast for postal workers. I'm Brandy Hughes. And I'm Kevin Hitchings. Today we're going to be talking about work floor actions and peaceful protests and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, if you're wondering why we're talking about this today, um, it's kind of in response to recent events. Uh, as you, I, I'm sure, are all aware, we have a federal election coming up on September 20th. And um, our political leaders are running into some issues on the campaign trail in that um, some people are getting rather violent. <laughs> They're throwing rocks and crushing eggs on people. Uh, right. Whether you think they deserve it or not, it's not a effective way to protest. It gets a little bit of attention for the action and overrides the purpose. Right. So um, the uh, egg smashing incident occurred in our home city here of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where a supposed supporter uh, posed for a picture with Maxime Bernier and then broke a raw egg on his head. And Bernier kind of brushed it off and went and changed his shirt and washed his hair and came back and continued the press conference. This week, Prime Minister Trudeau was... uh, at an event in London, Ontario, and had gravel thrown at him. Um, He also brushed it off, saying that he wasn't hurt. Um, But uh, some of his RCMP bodyguards, I guess you would say, and some of the... um, Security detail. Yeah, the security detail and some of the reporters present were also struck by the rocks. So it kind of took the attention away from what Trudeau and Bernier were saying, But at the same time, so I guess it was sort of effective in that way, but it also didn't put forward what the protesters wanted either, what they were trying to do other than silence the person. So it wasn't really effective. And it actually, in Trudeau's case at least, kind of gave him fuel to attack the conservatives, kind of implying that they were in charge or they were to blame for it and whatnot, even though most of them were holding signs, most of the protesters were holding signs of the People's Party, Maxine Bernier's party. He kind of used it to attack the Conservatives. So in the long run, it may have even ended up helping Trudeau uh, because I don't think anyone's too concerned with the People's Party winning many or even one seat. But it uh, gives them a little bit of leverage against the Conservatives who are a threat. Yeah, and and all of the um, federal leaders of our parties have condemned those actions, including Bernier, who says that his party does not support uh, the throwing of rocks. Um, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says that anyone purposely throwing rocks at someone isn't doing it, you know, just to get attention. They're doing it to harm someone. So it is a true act of violence. But they were basically pebbles in this case. Like, no one was Mm -hmm. ever in serious risk of being injured. Because you happen to catch one in the eye or something, I guess. Could happen. Um, Trudeau did make a statement saying that no one should be doing their jobs under threat of violence or acts that put them in danger, which I find kind of funny considering that we're now getting signatures again, mm-hmm. despite wave four of the pandemic. Sorry. <laughs> um, he has previously canceled uh, events on his campaign trail, most notably uh, one in Bolton, Ontario, due to the RCMP recommended that he cancel it because the crowds were particularly riled up and angry at that uh, event. Uh, the only other thing I really want to say about the um, political thing so much is that um, uh, experts are worried that the violence is possibly becoming more frequent, more organized, that the far uh, right groups like the anti-vaxxers are working together um, and kind of being emboldened by uh, social media 
and uh, also by the recent events uh, around the the uni- United States election and the storming of the Capitol building. Yeah, one of the things that is um, one of the lessons I guess we can take away from them uh, as CFPW members. Obviously, we don't want to emulate what they're doing, but the way they're organized is they don't actually have an organization. They're kind of putting things on Facebook and letting locals, local cities, organize themselves, which is kind of what uh, we can do here. You get awareness for the cause, you put out suggestions, you give people information, and then you let them organize how they see fit in their local. Because uh, there's a lot of different ways uh, a local may do something, bring attention to management. If you're a local of, you know, 600 people and you have installations with 100 in each, you can do something very different than if you're in a very small local with only, or a very small uh, location with only three members in it. I think that is one of the challenges that we face as a national union is that, um, like you said, every local is a little bit different. Some of the workplaces are a lot smaller than others. And so when we get direction to take a certain job action, sometimes people go, well, that's not going to work here, or it's just not feasible for us to make it happen, especially on a short period of time. It's kind of nice having everyone organized different too, because then management doesn't know what's coming. Right. And when they do get reports at the top that this happens here and this happens here, it seems like it's just an onslaught of constant things rather than just, oh, the whole country's doing this. Yeah, so yeah. maybe if we had like a list of say 50 different actions you could take and people just randomly chose one and did it on friday but (laughs) on the same token the whole country doing the same thing also shows a lot of solidarity so it depends on on the issue and what's going on the both are good i particularly like it when we can manage to do them at the same time that always seems to really scare management if you can say like 11 a.m across the country everyone's doing it one of the problems we've had in past is we get noticed to do something way too late. Yeah, usually the day before or even the day of. Yeah, and it'd be nice if, you know, uh, we'll take some blame on the local level. Me and Brand are both in the executive here. Um, a lot of times we don't think of something until we get a notice from nationals. Like, oh, yeah, we should have reacted to that. Um, but we do have a ten- tendency union-wide to be reactive rather than proactive. Um, so national or regional or even locally says, oh, we should do something Friday and it's already Wednesday. It's kind of hard to mobilize people because that has to be the first step is to get the work floor behind you. If you just show up in the work floor and say, hey, let's do this tomorrow, it's hard to get people excited about it. So mm-hmm. well, that's actually the second step. The first step is to really uh, clarify what you're protesting and what the goals are and then to go communicate that to the floor. This is why we need to change whatever or prevent whatever and get them excited about it. Then when you go to the floor and say, hey, we're ready to do something about this, they're ready to act. Um, Earlier this week, a depot in Windsor, Ontario, collectively refused to work due to unsafe conditions left by a construction crew when they uh, reported to the facility in the morning. So there was drywall dust, there was construction materials, there were boards with nails sticking up out of them. Um, And, you know, basically they came in and went, well, this isn't safe. Nobody's working here until it's cleaned up. And so they all just left again and the facility was cleaned before uh, they returned to work. And this has actually been done in a number of places across Canada post um, in response to the pandemic. Like um, when they say, well, we need to do more cleaning to prevent the spread of COVID. 
and people are working in disgustingly filthy post offices with years worth of dust built up on things where you're going, well, nothing's been sanitized here. Come on. So um, last April, so 2020, Golden BC uh, refused to work due to unsanitary conditions and so did Collingwood, Ontario, and their depots were miraculously cleaned. <laughs> one thing you have to be a little cautious of though, health and safety things are, are one thing we can just refuse. But yes. with a lot of other workflow actions, if you disrupt the business, it, depending on the situation, it can be illegal. If you're in a strike position where you're allowed to take work action, that's one thing. But if someone deems that the union has deliberately stopped operation of the business when you're not in a job action position, uh, the union can get fined, people can get fined. There's issues with that. Individuals can do things and we can even suggest individuals do things, but, we, but you have to be careful that the union isn't organizing it. So if you plan something on the work right. floor, make sure you at least consult with the local who will probably consult with regional uh, because there is some sticky gray area there. If you do something like, you know, just stop working for 15 minutes or uh, something that's unusual or just, uh, I know a long time ago on one of the strikes, they said if mail comes through, they're understaffed, they may not be able to check postage. You know, they didn't tell the members to not check postage or anything like that. They just kind of suggested this may happen. But something like that during a non-strike time could be deemed um, illegal. So check with your local before you do anything. Small things that don't disrupt work, though, like if you have black uh, t-shirt days or things like that, that doesn't disrupt the work. Those things are perfectly fine. Uh, making noise on the floor, I know they like that sometimes, just to let the supervisors know that you're you're there and have strength on the floor. That doesn't disrupt work generally. Those things are fine. But any kind of work stoppage, um, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm just saying make sure you cover your bases. Right, and and it's also important to keep in mind that if you're if you're doing refusing to do something under the health and safety refusal, if you're using Article Thirty Three. 13 in our urban collective agreement they can't ask anyone else to do that work until the situation's been investigated thoroughly and both the union and the corporation have agreed that it is now safe um, that whatever the situation was has been resolved and it's now safe to work if you're refusing under the labor code they can ask someone else to do that work provided they inform them of the risks so just a little bit different there and something to keep in mind some of the examples of things that you can't do on the work floor pretty safely are, you know, the, the t-shirt days, like I say, the armbands we've had before, uh, noise-making days. Um, you can also just set an example. We've talked about it here before where we do have the right to complain in the collective agreement. And uh, you can grab a shop steward and go complain to management. And there's at least one instance in the city where no one was told to do it. They were just said, hey, I'm going to go complain to management. If anyone else feels to, just to remind or feels like doing it as well, just to remind you, you have the right. And they ended up storming the office with 50 people, or however many there was, lined up to complain. And management realized how long this is gonna take and that we have the right to do it. And they caved immediately. So things like that, um, you can always do on the floor as well. That's a great idea. And please, if you're gonna do that, take a witness, preferably a shop steward who, who can help you. <laughs> the collective agreement says you do it in the presence of a steward. So that's two people off the floor. Right. And if you line them all up, that's, Quite a bit of time off that the contract says we can do so you're not doing any kind of work action you're just following the collective agreement right and i mean really i know there's going to be people who say like oh i'll never get my mail out my bags will be late whatever 
my day will be so long, but um, it's kind of a small, just taking that 15 minutes out of your day is a small price to pay to actually change something for the better and make your everyday better going forward. But again, like I say, for something like that to happen, you have to have the workflow mobilized against or mobilized behind you. So you do want to make sure the issues are clear to the floor ahead of time um, and get them a little bit excited if possible to do this kind of thing. I don't want to go too much on individual things because, you know, use your imagination, come up with anything you want. Um, and it's nice to come up with something new, like the noise days, whatever, they just ignore them, usually at least here. Uh, it's nice to come up with something they're not expecting. But there's also the, the larger campaigns that we can do, and those don't involve the workflow at all. If you get the public involved, you can set up, uh, you know, we've done uh, mailers, brochures, handles, notes before, we've set up tables, information tables. I know with the uh, DECOPO, Robert Neely was brilliant on, on DECOPO before DECOPO was even called that, I think. Um, might have been had the name back then, but uh, she did a lot of trade shows uh, I, I went to four or five, I think, with her to talk to the public and get interest going and really educate the public and get the ball rolling, um, talk to some politicians and things like that because uh, they were at these things a lot and really get some interest going. So it doesn't have to be restrained to the work floor. You can get these things out to the public, get it, get some notice to it. You can send out press releases. Uh, I know in Saskatoon we've gone to city council a couple of times, especially during the um, door-to-door conversion. Right. when they were replacing the C, uh, CMBs. I uh, went to city council meetings to make sure that city council was opposed, um, which was sad because it was almost unanimous. And then there was one city councillor who went really hard in favor of CMBs and caused us a lot of pain, but it was really close to the city strongly opposing that, except for this one guy. So, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of um, actions you can take in the general public. Um, you can take general strikes, uh, consumer boycotts of certain businesses, petitions. Um, in Brazil, they have been known to bang pots together at the same time in protest of a president they didn't like. There's also digital protests. So um, these are ways to adapt during the pandemic when you d- probably don't want to get together in a group of two 2,000 people. Um, and a digital protest usually involves something like holding up your rally sign and posting the picture of you holding it mm-hmm. online maybe with a certain hashtag so that they're all organized together. Petitions are always good too. They can be done in per- in person or online. And they're nice because anybody can sign one once you get a few signatures on and people aren't worried about being signaled out because not everybody wants to make noise and be noticed, but it's not hard to get someone just to sign their name to a paper. Mm-hmm. And then they get at least a little bit involved and maybe more willing next time. But it's something everybody can do. And uh, it shows a lot of solidarity. Like you may not be be able to get everybody at one time, but you can probably get everybody to sign over the course of a week or two. And if you make it easy for them to share on their social media, then maybe all of their friends and um, contacts see the same petition and maybe they sign as well and share it with their people. Right. I think that was an important piece of stopping the door-to-door conversion. I don't think they were expecting thousands and thousands of signatures. So even in public, you can do things similar to the the black t-shirt day where you just wear something that's symbolic of what you're protesting. Um, I guess maybe we might be to the point where wearing a mask might qualify as that. Um, You can also do uh, enactments of certain things. Like it's often uh, they're done kind of tongue-in-cheek to make fun of something that's happening that they don't agree with, like perhaps the pandemic response. There have also been 
times where uh, they've used singing to protest. Uh, for example, the singing revolution of 1988. Estonians got together and sang for five nights in a row to protest rule by the Soviet Union. They eventually gained independence three years later. Because they were just really bad singers. The Soviets <laughs> were tired of well, listening to I think it. it was just that there were so many people <laughs> were willing to get together and do this for five nights in a row. I have four other really good examples where they were successful. So the 1930 Salt March in India, organized by Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, this was to protest that Native Indians were disallowed from collecting or selling salt by the British overseers. Um, it's a weirdly specific, just salt. Just so, well, because it's it was a big trade item, right? Mm. And like you could harvest salt from the sea, and they were not allowed to make money off of it, basically. But the British could. Um, 1913 suf suffrage parade for women seeking equal political rights. Uh, the Delano grape boycott of 1960s uh, was a 25-day hunger strike to strike to end the exploitation of United States farm workers. And the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks refusing to move uh, in protest of racial seg segregation on buses. And a year later, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of, of her action and, and, and officially ended segregation on the buses. Rosa Parks is a good example, too. You don't always need to mobilize masses, sometimes just... Making an example, yeah. Uh, I know I did that with uh, with flyers at the West before they were allowing overtime for coalition. They used to always say, prep your flyers on your own time if you want to, kind of thing. And I just worked to rule to make sure my days were long. And I put in overtime at the end of the days to coalate and grieved the OT. And I couldn't get anyone else to do it because they just thought it was a waste of time. And after, I don't know, a couple of weeks, they just stopped fighting it. And I got everybody in the depot who, uh, who put in overtime for collating got it. And then very shortly after they agreed to do that nationally, not because of me, just by coincidence. So, um, but yeah, one person can make a difference. It's, it's really good to mobilize everybody, but, uh, but don't be scared to go on your own as long as you're, uh, doing something that's not going to get you suspended. Unless you want to get suspended, some unpaid vacation time doesn't always hurt. I think that's a great example, though, because it's one of those things that management uh, was basically ignoring and letting us deal with. And us doing that on our own time was us taking an untenable situation and making it work at, at, at a cost to ourselves, like sacrificing our personal time yeah. in order to do it. And if you don't collate those flyers and you have nine sets, which a lot of us do right now, it being September, back to school season, um, or more, some of you have more, sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you didn't collate those, your next day would just be ridiculous. Like you would spend an extra hour and a half just getting ready to leave in the morning. So it's just making the next day worse and then the next day worse and then the next day worse. And eventually it gets to the point where you're like, you know what, I can't do it today. And you're going to phone in because you just need a break. And there's been a few things that have been changed here just through the grievance process alone. Uh, people, if you see something wrong, if you see them doing something incorrect, uh, you have to point out before it gets out of control. I know they used to uh, phone you before the Eclipse system and offer you shifts but not tell you what the shift was. Just we have 
a shift at this depot. Four hours of work. Yeah. We have a shift at this depot or we have a shift at that depot. What do you want? And uh, I started just saying, well, what are the routes? And they said, I don't know. I said, okay, well, call me back when you do. And usually they call me back, but if they didn't, I grieved it. And they never, like after a little bit of that, they never called me without having that sheet ready. You know, they would still say the same thing, this depot or this depot. And I'd say, well, what are the routes? And they always had them there because they knew it was going to happen. So, and then pretty much, uh, and then not long after that, I got enough other people doing it that they didn't bother this, you know, this depot or this depot. It was, these are the routes available. Well, because before that happened, they would try to, they, I don't think they honestly knew what work they were offering before that because you would show up and they would change their story three times. Yeah, no, I think I forced them to. I think I forced them to really. You know, and how are you supposed to come to work and know what to wear, not even knowing what route you're doing? What if it's a driving route? What if it's a walking route? What if, you know, (laughs) who knows? At that point, they weren't even offering terms, uh, route when they got the depot that you just show up and they'd say, go take this one. And they would offer them or give them to you as you got there. And uh, I refused that too. In 2006, um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria J. Steffen at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs started a study. And basically they looked at violent and nonviolent ca- political campaigns like to, to, to create political change between 1900 and 2006. Uh, they reviewed 323 mass actions and considered approximately 160 variables. And they eventually um, published a book called Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. And they found that there are generally four factors to an effective nonviolent campaign. Um, they are having a large and diverse uh, participant group. And they found that it's actually easier to recruit people for nonviolent campaigns than it is for violent ones, because it's kind of hard to convince people to go and hurt other people sometimes. Well, it's not just the hurt. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think violence includes illegal things. D- yes. Not necessarily something that's going to hurt somebody. That's something that puts the participants at risk of criminal of prostitution jailed. or even just uh, even something that's really unseemly. Uh, like these current protesters against the politicians don't seem to care they're giving the finger and yelling racist slurs and stuff like that at, at, at staff members and things. Yeah. But most people don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff. And it's just not effective anyway, because again, it takes attention away from whatever issue you're trying to promote. Right. Um, secondly, it often works to shift the loyalty of security forces like police, um, armed forces. Um, so the theory there is that if you're being nonviolent, in your protest, and then they're asked to commit violence against you, to suppress you, it's a lot harder to convince them to do that. Even though it's their job, (laughs) it's kind of like, well, I feel wrong doing this because these people aren't hurting anyone. Yeah, they're not going to be as gung-ho to get in there and start firing off the tear gas. Um, These nonviolent campaigns tend to use varied methods rather than just one specific... uh, type of of resistance and they have to remain nonviolent even when they're repressed so even when some of the people are being arrested or held temporarily or tear gassed or whatever you still have to stick to your nonviolent um, beliefs when Jean-Claude Perrault uh, president of CUPW at the time got arrested in 1979 
uh, for standing up for the labor movement. I haven't seen any reference to any postal workers, you know, turning violent, getting excited, abusing people or anything like that. Uh, we just supported them and brought a lot of attention. The attention stayed on why Jean-Claude got arrested and not on the union's reaction. If we would have uh, lost it and started flipping postal vans or something like that, that would have made for some good footage, but it would have hurt our cause. It would have made us the bad guy. Yeah, and yeah. that would not have gone well. So yeah, keeping it peaceful uh, and keeping the public on your side, um, which again was a huge thing in door-to-door -door delivery. Uh, we didn't go attacking the, the corporation as much as we did go out and uh, remind the public how we were serving them. And I still see door-to-door, save door-to-door signs. Oh, up, yeah. You know, in people's windows. Yeah. Um, it, it also might feel like, if you're organizing some of these things, it might feel like you don't have enough people or that, you know, maybe your response is small. But it's also been shown that even just 3.5% of a population can be effective in instituting nationwide change. So when you look at a country the size of ours, um, we're talking millions of people, right? So it can really, it can really, if we actually got that many people together to do so something, people kind of have to take notice, right? When you think about it too, is, uh, it's going back to politics. Right now, as we're recording, the conservatives and the liberals are almost equal. And according to the polls and the, um, technically the way the polls line up, we could see a liberal majority just with the seat distribution, but we could also see a conservative minority and 1% in that situation could make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take a lot. Uh, you just need a lot strongly motivated. And again, back to the save door to door, um, the conservatives, came out in that election and said that they lost three seats, I believe it was, directly because of our campaign and another six or seven where we had a strong and possibly a determining factor. Yay, we accomplished something. So yeah, um, so anything you feel needs change in your workplace, uh, get the local involved. Make sure you have a clearly defined plan and make sure your issues are clear and uh, start as early as possible. Uh, I think that's always been our biggest fault with the uh, union in general with us. But yeah, determine that plan, determine your goals, determine what you're going to do and then get out there and do it. Be flexible, adapt to whatever the corporation does, uh, be persistent. And uh, in the meantime, feel free to email us at overburdenpod at gmail.com. And if you're looking for more ideas for methods of nonviolent action, the Albert Einstein Institution has provided a list of 198 methods of nonviolent action. Uh, they can also be found in volume two of the Poli Politics of Nonviolent Action by Gene Sharp. Um, there's lots of good ideas in there. There really are 198 of them. And by the time you're done reading all 198, we'll be back again with next week's episode. <laughs> Have a good week. Mm -hmm.